Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I'm thrilled to welcome Léa Imobersteg as my guest. Léa is Head of Global Design Thinking at GF Piping Systems, the leading flow solutions provider across the world and proud sponsor of this podcast. We have been scratching the surface of design thinking several times on this microphone, so I thought it was about time to dive a bit deeper into it and to learn how it applies in a technical and industrial context. After 51 regular episodes and 15 bonus ones, Today is the first time I have one of my GF colleagues on that microphone and you'll swiftly understand why. Indeed, Leah will share how design thinking is a powerful approach to problem solving and how it can help companies of all sizes to beef up their innovation. She'll guide us through the stages of a design thinking project and demonstrate how the faster you fail, the better it is. Counterintuitive, right? In our conversation, Leah shows the common traits and differences between design thinking, growth hacking, agile, Kanban, and many other methodologies, how the design in design thinking may be misleading, and how design thinking applies in problems that involve humans and users, not in purely technical cases. She'll share how to design a prototype with regards to the hypothesis you want to verify, how you shall carefully select the problem you'd like to solve, and how starting small is the surest way to deliver to then build on and iterate. She also addresses how hierarchy still plays a role within an innovation project, how to avoid a cultural clash implementing design thinking into an existing organization with a strong history and she closes our deep dive with the three very actionable tools you can apply from tomorrow on to beef up your innovation. We also discuss risk-taking, daring, teaming up, questioning beliefs, adding the planet as a stakeholder and much more. I hope you like this conversation and if you find out the tools Leah shares can be of interest to one of your friends or colleagues, do them a favor, grab their phones and subscribe them to the podcast. And remember, if you don't want to steal a phone, well, you can also send them a message or post a link on social media. Come on, do it for them and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Leah. Welcome to the show. Hello, Antoine. Nice to be here. So I think we shortly discussed that uh, in our preparation but uh, today it's a first for me. It's the first time I have one of my colleagues at GF Piping Systems on that microphone. So glad it's you. Glad uh, that uh, I have you as the first member of our company to be on that microphone beside me. But still, we have traditions. So let's start with uh, the postcard. Today, I know where you are because we're sitting in the same room. Doesn't happen that often, neither. We're in Schaffhausen. Do you want to tell me something about Schaffhausen or the place you live? What would be your postcard? Perfect. Um, we're in beautiful Schaffhausen, where I was actually uh, born and raised. Uh, I left the place. Some You're more a real than... local. Yes, yes. Truly local, gone missing. So I currently work, um, live in Zurich. So I do commute uh, with the train back to Schaffhausen. And I think what people love about the place and what I love is the Rhine River, where you have the biggest waterfall for sure uh, in Europe. Rhinefall passing by and... I think growing up here, it's it's the perfect place to go for a swim. So the postcard would be lots of water <laughs> going down the river. Well, by the way, if you come by train, you have the best postcard possible because the train really goes next to the Rhine Falls. So I think that's a good way to advocate for people to take the train instead of the car. So yeah, I think that's probably the best possible postcard from Schaffhausen or from my very little experience. I'm not a local. I think I say once per podcast that I'm French. So that's the moment I say I'm French. So glad to, to see that I have someone who really knows what, what Schaffhausen is all about. Now that we've made this, this very context about where we are right now, let's introduce yourself. How did you arrive to this field of design thinking? What, what led you to that? What is your, your, your personal path? 
I'll try to make it not too long because my partner always makes joke about uh, me telling like, I don't know, half my life story, but I do think it makes a difference understanding how I came to, to the job as head of global design thinking at GF Piping Systems. I think what's the initial spark was my work as a salesperson in the watch industries. So that's how I earned my money when I was 18. I kind of needed to have a job and I started to work in Lucerne most beautiful uh, city in Switzerland where all the tourists, mainly from China, <laughs> came by. And I think that's where I learned how important it is to get different customers to understand what they need. It's very different if you sell a, a swatch watch to a little girl or to a Chinese party member. They have different needs, they have different wishes. And that's really what, what I realized how important it is to understand the, the underlying need, not just the product that they want to buy. And I think that's also what made me realize how important the, the human interaction is. When I was working at the Swiss consulate in Shanghai, I just realized you need several stakeholders. You're never alone. You, you always need to have to your partners, uh, your organizations like uh, Swiss Next, Prohevetia. You never do things alone in order to be successful. And I think that's the things that came together when I was working in the strategy department of Credit Suisse, one of the two major Swiss banks. Again, it was all about pushing the strategic agenda forward, making decisions about the future. And I think that's really where I realized I want to have a job where you work on the future with people and also thinking a bit about the future differently. Banking industry, um, there was little need for change back then where everything was like, yeah, well, we are now a money. We have our great relationship managers. Things started changing also with the investment banking. And that's really where I started the journey to look for another position. And I um, ended up <laughs> at least work-wise back in Schaffhausen working for the GF Corporation as a design thinking champion. And now here at Piping Systems, it's really bringing that together, like a deeper understanding of the needs of our customers with a strategic foresight on deciding where are we going, where are we investing in order to stay competitive as a company. So watches, bank, that was a very Swiss path, and then something went, went wrong and you went for, <laughs> for piping. So That's a weird move. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only missing chocolate, I would say. <laughs> true, very true. Um, on your experience in Shanghai with the consulate, does that play a role as well? Because all of a sudden you're in a different culture. How did you live this part of your life? What was your, your main experience there? Mm -hmm. I think I'm, I'm very um, blessed that I speak Mandarin due to my mother, who's from Taiwan, so... Big shout out, thanks to her. Growing up here in Switzerland with a second language really helped to, to get a deeper understanding. And I think living in Shanghai made me realize how, how there are similarities as well. Even you have a different culture where you are talk about a lot about not losing your face. There are still needs and you can still tell from the expression of a No, your counterpart of the mimics, the guestics, if the person is engaged. And it doesn't even need that much by Joe, the alcohol to make people warm up, but it's really about seeing and understanding. And I think that's also what I see nowadays. I'm still working with our colleagues in China, currently remotely. <laughs> it's about understanding the situation, the context of our customers. And even if it's maybe not as straightforward as maybe with the US colleagues, there are still a lot of nuances. And that's the beauty again about a design thinking approach. You're understanding the context as a person is living in. So you're not trying to put a, I don't know, a Swiss mentality on a Chinese customers, but you really try to deep dive into their reality, which helps if you can be there. So definitely living in Shanghai helped to understand the way of living better. I think we now gave several spoilers about what our conversation will be all about. And of course, it's going to be about scratching the surface and then going a bit deeper into this design thinking. I have to say design thinking is a topic that we've touched on that microphone several times, but really touched, like we put it there and never entered into design thinking. So I have to say, we could almost say that we're, on my end at least, we the water professionals are still a bit virgin or muggles when it comes to design thinking. So I'll keep one question in the fridge, which is what you're currently doing as a design thinking champion and head of design thinking at GF. So let's come to that a bit later. Let's start by defining design thinking. What is it all about? 
I'm trying not to give the school book uh, definition because I think that's something you can Google uh, afterwards. For me, design thinking... Well, I Googled it. Yes. <laughs> and uh, when I Googled it, uh, the first answer who came from Google is there is no one definition. So I think even Googling isn't really giving you the direct answer. Perfect. Then let me give my very personal subjective <laughs> definition of uh, design thinking then. I think... Design thinking is a methodology, but also a way of approaching problem solving. And that sounds very abstract. So um, let me come to some examples afterwards. I think it's all about a iterative approach where you start with a problem statement, you dig deeper, you open up yourself to a lot of opportunities on how to solve that problem that you've identified. And then you come up with different ways of working in a very interdisciplinary team. I think that's also some key component for me about the, the way of working. You never do it alone. Like this innovator that's sitting in his corner. I think it's a lot about recombining things that are already out there based on a human need. So I think that's the part where this human-centered innovation approach comes in for design thinking. And as I mentioned before, we started actually to put in the planet also as a stakeholder. So for us, slowly but steadily, design thinking is not just a human-centered innovation approach, but also a planet-centric one. That is the concept that we discussed a bit with uh, Denise Moll on that microphone. She was talking about ecological design thinking. I think this is an approach which is at least in the air. So if I get it right... The root of design thinking is this empathy element. You need to connect yourself to something, be it the planet, a human, the nature in the case of biomimicry. So how do you develop this empathy? What is it all about? I think it's great to start with empathy. And now coming back to the frame, I tried to explain it to my grandma normally. It's thinking as a designer where you need to empathize with the future user of your products or your services. So why do you have a chair? Is it for sitting? Is it for showing off that you have a lot of money and you can uh, no, afford a, a very expensive chair in, in your beautiful home? I think that's really where it starts. Empathy. A nice quote from a colleague yesterday. He He's about to retire. He's been working in the company for you know, 40-something years. And he said... Oh, I hate these people that studied innovation, right? They don't know how to do innovation. And I think he has a point. You can learn a process. You can learn a way of thinking. But empathy is something you need to practice every day. You can start with your partner, your kids, <laughs> yeah, your family. And it continues with your working colleagues. And then it goes out to your customers. So listening I think I've, I've mentioned that many times in a lot of conversation. It's about truly listening and not already have an answer in your head. So when have you really listened to a person without starting your sentence? And there was a nice uh, discussion we had a few weeks ago. If your steering committee answers after two seconds, once you finish your pitch, they already had their answers ready Very while true. you were pitching. And I think that's really where this empathy part starts, to endure the silence and endure that it's not about giving an answer, but really trying to understand, okay, what's the reality of a, let's say, a planner that is uh, designing a, a new building and not just trying to give him the, the solutions, but start to understand the problem. So, yeah, I think a small tip, no, what I try to do every other day is, Enduring like a five second silence and you're listening and that's pretty long. That was five seconds. <laughs> and only then start to make sense of what the other person said. And I think that's, uh, that's where empathy starts. Yeah. So that has this element of active listening. I guess it's not everything about the, the design thinking methodology, but that's the start if I get it right. I think it's really this core in order to dig deeper again that's also one of the you know asking the five whys it's uh, i mean 
something you you google again and said yeah ask five times well, why <laughs> i don't need to google it i have a two years old daughter so uh the, it's not five it's like five million whys yeah. but uh, it's true that at the end you end up always talking about the universe because the root of it is <laughs> and again it, it, it goes similar into understanding a, a user needs right is it uh, do i need a piping system to transport liquids Or is actually the, the job to be done on your customer sites, it's ensuring that your entire system is running. Or is it actually as a uh, installer that you just have zero downtime and then you go deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think that's really where the beauty then comes for us as a company then to take these insights and do something with it. And that's normally the biggest or most difficult part is to say, okay, now we take a decision as a company to try to solve certain problems and not all of them. So focusing on a few things that really matter to the customers and make a competitive advantage is something that's challenging as well, because we live in a very competitive industry, right? I think after all your podcasts, you've seen that. And it's really about what are the customers willing to work with together with you? What's another only about the money part? Sure. I mean, costs is something that's always a discussion, but what can you bring to the table that the counterpart says, okay, no matter what, you help me. And that's why I will want to work with you. And all of a sudden you start talking about other things than just the cost and why we are more expensive than our metal competitors. So it starts by identifying the problems. So that is this active listening, the five whys, and going really to the root of it. And then once you have this full wealth of problems, you then pick the one which are the most pressing, probably, and try to solve them. Also the one which passed to what you can solve yourself. And you mentioned the iterative aspect of things. When does that come in play? I think iterations are at the heart of it. And it's Again, something that's maybe a bit counterintuitive coming from a traditional product development in an industrial company. You normally also do, you know, you do some first prototypes, you have an idea, you go into the 3D printing and then you develop a first mold and you go out into the market. And what the entire design thinking methodology is telling you is start small, do lots of very rough prototypes. And the prototype can be just literally a sheet of paper and it can be a mock-up on a screen. And there it already starts because you all of a sudden see that your great idea has many flaws, actually. You know, you're like, okay, what's the next step? How do people actually make decisions? So the prototype think compared to a technical prototype where you check the functionality is actually testing the way how decisions are taken, how your customer is approaching a problem that they have. And through these discussions and many, many discussions, you come to a better solution. And I think that's the iterative mentality that goes through the entire cycle because you, you become more and more concrete. And I think that's the next myth about design thinking. It's not about never ending beautiful cardboard prototypes, but you start with a piece of paper, you go into cardboard, then you become concrete. And the more money and time you invest, the better the decision should also be. So it's also about making better decisions along the way and not, no, as you, I don't know, after three years of development to say, oh, we stop a project. I think that there's an element of MVP in what you just said, which um, I'll put together with my other question in the fridge, because that's something I want to dive a bit deeper into it. But right before, you mentioned job to be done, which um, I also read as a methodology, the job to be done methodology. You have the lean startup methodology. You have uh, growth hacking as a methodology. You have agile by certain aspects is also a similar methodology. And then you have design thinking. Is that all different names for the same thing? Or... Do you have major differences between all of these words? Or is it the place where it applies in the process, which is different? What is your take there? I think we as a company back in, yeah, 2016 or even earlier with our um, previous CEO, Yves Serra, and he's now the um, president of the board, he made a very strong, bold move while working with IDEO to say everybody at the company should be customer-centric while innovating. You could have replaced design thinking with a lot of different innovation methodologies, 
What's for me the biggest difference is really that human-centered part. You can work on an agile methodology, also ignoring a bit more, no, the customer side. Sure, you have um, kind of the user journeys, etc. So in all these different methodologies, you do have similar patterns. And that's also what I often say. I'm not the Methodenpapst in German. So I'm not like, okay, you have to do it exactly like that, but really rather think what's, what's important for the project to be successful. What's needed to come up with a good business case. You have to work in an agile way in order to be fast with decision making. So our project team meets weekly. You take decisions. You have kind of clear tasks. We have a Kanban board on where you work, but I would say, oh, we're now Scrum <laughs> because it's again Kanban, taking Scrum. the best. It, exactly. It, yeah. You're right. There are other ones which I didn't mention. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think that's also the, the beauty and the hatred about these innovation methodologies. It's not about doing them or following a strict process, but it's more a variety of things that can help you to make better, faster decisions as a company. So it's tools in your toolbox. And then as long as you keep the user-centric approach or planet-centric approach, you're probably right. And the best, uh, yesterday, I, I was at a working session, best slogan ever, a fool with a tool is still a fool. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're not willing to open up to challenge the status quo, I can give you 10 or 20 tools and you will still come up with the answer that you want to hear. So I think it really starts, and I have a lot of discussions about that. It starts really with the mentality, the mindset, the DNA on how you as employee of a company approach things. Have you already fixed your solution? Then I don't need to give you any tools to work on. If you say, actually, no, we, we need to develop a new solution because water becomes more scarce. Okay, let's have a conversation and let's think of how you can figure that out. There's one element, if it's a tool and we're not fixed on design thinking itself. When you tell me design thinking, you know, I remember when I was a kid, my father was saying, hey, that's design. For him, that would mean it's nice, it's beautiful, but it's probably absolutely unpractical, but it's nice. So if I get it right, design thinking is about the exact opposite. We don't care if it's beautiful. We want it to be very practical and to be very catered to the user. Is it? doing a service to the full methodology and the approach to still call it design thinking. Did you have some pushback from people saying, why design? Yeah. Especially in China, when I tried to translate it into Chinese, I had many big kind of discussions because like design is such a, a used term. No, it's like, I don't know, law or <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, being a doctor, everybody has a mental no a picture in, in the head. I think What's still the beauty is about, no, again, that empathy part. And then looking into the question in the fridge about the MVP, thinking about an MLP, we said, minimum lovable product, it really will help the success of your product, of your service. If you have fans in your customer base that are willing to buy something. So I, I love to steal the basic idea about design to understand what's the need. And again, the thinking part, somebody had to come up with that name. Uh, I think it was in the 60s where IDEO made the whole methodology a bit more mainstream. No, I think if you do a research on Google on uh, publications, there is definitely a spike in, in the last 40, 50, 60 years where companies realize that that may be one of the ways to help them to stay competitive in the market. Again, it's not the only solution. Many discussions here are also with, with our management team. It's not a magic pill that you can just swallow and all of a sudden everybody becomes very innovative and we have this uh, 30 million opportunities popping up. It's more about in the everyday, having everybody along the value chain from our sales colleagues out in the market, from our R&D teams, really thinking, why am I designing something to again bring in our colleagues from marketing to make the storytelling right. That's for me, the real transformation where we as a company are really on a, on a very good journey, I would say. Very practically speaking, when would you use design thinking? What is the trigger you see out there in the environment where you say, hey, that is the point of time I have to start using it? I like to 
take two aspects into it. One is, is there a human problem? Is it only technical and you already know everything out there? Then no need to kind of go very deep into the discussion. You remember complicated versus complex. So if you have a complicated problem, meaning you have problem A, you know, you need to build a car and you know exactly what to do to build that car. You don't need to question the car building. The same here with an existing wolf. If we know everything, you don't need to go into all the details. However, if you have a complex problem where you're like, how can we um, survive and help our customers to build more sustainable solutions to save water? There you have several complex aspects, right? How do you save water? For whom are you saving it? What's the things that are there? What's the possibilities to go beyond? And there design thinking can really unleash its full potential. And that's also a big discussion we have here in the company. Like, have you done design thinking? It's one of the most stupidest questions. It's more, have you thought about your users? Have you worked in an interdisciplinary team? Have you used the data gathered for decision-making? Or did you take your decision because you already knew it? And that's the discussions that I would like to have rather than saying you should do it or not. We have a lot of colleagues. I do some coachings once in a while in communication or in HR. They come and say, we want to redesign the website. Do you have an hour? I just want to make sure that we, you know, involve our users. We have a new talent management program. I just want to ensure that we have covered the right personas. And that's for me a beautiful way of applying design thinking, even if it's not the next, you know, again, 30 million thing coming out. But maybe, who knows, if an employee gets the chance to bring in their ideas, probably that's the next big cool fit program that we've launched. And I think that's really where design thinking should be applied. So design thinking is not a gatekeeper. It's not one of these gates that you have to undergo. It is as we said before, a tool in the toolbox, which is here to remind you to put the user at the center of everything that you're, you want to develop. You mentioned now several times the multidisciplinary aspect of it. Does that mean that if I go out and start discussing with all my customers and try to put them at the very center, but I do that all alone, that I'm wrong? It's better you do it by yourself than not doing it at all, definitely. I think, again, where the full potential is unleashed is when you when you come back and you have a team of maybe experts, but also maybe people that are not too deep in the technical part to come together to make sense of the data you've gathered, because you have a perspective. You can be, you know, as you said before, as open and as wondering as your um, little um, kid. At the same time, you still have direction because you come you know, from a business development side. So it's actually important for the process to bring in also people from a different element, product management colleague that really knows the market well, bringing in a technical expert that will help you to understand what's feasible or not, bringing in a, you know, a customer research expert that will really say, have you dig really deeper? Or is that actually an answer that you wanted to have? That's why you asked the question. So the head, the team will help you again to make better decisions. Let me take now out of that fridge this element of MVP, which in between became an MLP, because uh, your definition is minimum lovable product. My question here is that we are in an industrial context. And on that microphone, we were regularly discussing about water companies, developing processes, sometimes the technology that comes from the International Space Station and is brought back to Earth, sometimes something which is, we've always done, done it that way, and then we take a new turn on it. And here I have a hard time figuring out that with mock-ups and cardboard, I can already have something where my user can grab it sufficiently to extract valuable information about what I'm currently developing. How wrong am I with that preconception? It depends a lot on the stage of where your project is. So again, if you take now industrial company, piping systems, where we are, there will be a moment in time, even before starting a technical development, that we're still searching for the real problem. And a cardboard prototype, as I've mentioned before, can help us. It's more like a mean of communication. 
it's a provocative thing to put a cardboard prototype in front of an investor and having them speak and make sense of what they see. And these are then the informations that you can take in order to make your technical development better because you will understand that safety is a huge concept for them. They couldn't care less about the design or the opposite way. Actually, design is very critical because that element is shown in a pump room in China where actually it's a lot about showing face again. So the design actually plays a bigger role, maybe, than the different parameters. Or you put them as a mock-up prototype with, with several sensors element. And they will tell you what they really need versus what's a nice to have. So yes, it's pretty provocative to put these prototypes out into uh, the customer's reality. We had a project with building technology last year where we um, had an interview with a customer via Teams, <laughs> as we often have. And just by clicking through a mock-up that we've designed through a few hours in the morning, we gathered so much more information or there was an example where we had a 3D prototype of a, a valve for our utility business where there were some holes, some holes. And the customer said, like, what are these holes for? And then number one, if there's something to remember from today, ask back, <laughs> don't give the answer. So the, the, the interviewee of our team, she asked back, it's like, what are these holes for for you? What do you see in these holes? And then the customers came and said, yeah, that's actually like a hook, right? Because you could insert a hook because the wolf is down in the trench. It's dirty. Uh, it's hard to get. So actually something to, to lift the wolf. And we were all stunned there. It's like, mm, well, that's interesting because we thought about sensors. <laughs> <laughs> so we realized again, if you create something for the utility market, which we know already, it's really important because the real life conditions are so different from our R&D um, departments here, maybe in, in beautiful Schaffhausen. So that means that this prototype element is almost breaking a pattern. You want to strip down your, your ID to its simplest form so that you don't distract the user with something which might prevent him from, from giving you his real truth. Mm -hmm. But how do you decide on the right size to go with your minimum? Because minimum means it's still not nothing, it's something. So how do you size your, your prototype? Again, that's really something that you can't <laughs> get out of a book <laughs> just saying, okay, at this stage, you need to have that prototype. It really depends on what is the reaction you want to trigger. We have that a lot also currently in the current project where it's all around circular economy What do we want to figure out? We're very broad at the moment. So we realized that our prototype, there are so many aspects and, and it's like, okay, that's probably a bit overwhelming. So we need to come back and define the set of hypotheses that we want to test. And based on that, we define which elements the prototype needs to have in its core. If your hypotheses and the uncertainties you still have are mainly on the technical side, Then focus on the technical elements, right? Where is the switch need to be? Um, know what's kind of the connection, etc. These are things if that's the only thing missing. However, if you're more targeting uncertainties regarding market requirements, you can go into having a prototype all around, okay, you know, how do you access your market? What are the channels making a, a customer journey and asking them to, to rate actually what's true? No, do you go through a distributor? Do you go through um, your local dealers? Do you do direct selling? There's no right and wrong. Look at your project. Look at the highest uncertainties you have and the information that you need and design the prototype for these elements, which, I mean, never ending learning, right? Oh. Something we both share, you never stop learning. There's always parts where you come back from a testing and said, ah, sh we should have asked this and that. And that's the beauty about uh, iterations again. So uh, we, we have in the current project, we had three weeks of first round of interviews. Now we start with testing. And every week when we get new feedback, we can actually adjust the prototype on the fly once we've verified or falsified one of our hypotheses. And that needs guts. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> 
You mentioned the never stopping to learn. There are two elements into that. The first is, as much as I love the idea, I've discussed on that microphone with Paul O'Callaghan, who wrote a, a full thesis about how long it takes for water innovation to go out there in the market. And what he was showing is that even the most successful technologies there are take 30 to 40 years to go out there in the market and to, to reach mass market. So that means that there's also a full wealth of other technologies which simply live there somewhere and never reach that mass market. So what I want to underline here is the kind of conservative nature of that industry. And uh, when preparing for our discussion, I, I read that that's sometimes a major barrier to design thinking. And the, the example they were giving in the literature I read was about healthcare and saying in healthcare, you cannot take the risk to go out and put something which might be too innovative or going really against the habit because there's life on the line. And that is something we share with the, the, the water industry. If we make something really fancy, which might be very, very promising on the long run, but in between you get water at your tap, which is of a bad quality, then you have a big problem. So how do you overcome this element of the, the conservative aspect to still not limit your creativity, but on the same hand, stay reasonable, if that's possible? Two things. I learned from you the, bird, um, the beautiful word chas chasm, right? <laughs> <laughs> so really thinking about the early adopters, your early fans, the, the ones in your industry, no matter it's now the water industry or the healthcare industry, to really find these customers and, and stakeholders that believe in a different story and start small. I think, again, if you say we want to, no, change the whole word. We'll be sitting here and drafting a plan for the next 40 years and don't do anything. Or we start to try again to empathize with our kind of lead, lead users and see what are their pains. And that can be sometimes very small things to lead to some quick wins. And then also having that bigger vision in mind and you no know, designing backwards saying, okay, what is needed to make that vision happen? Who are the regulatory bodies that we need to go on early? Who are the decision makers in that field? And I would like to take an example, actually, from the healthcare industry. I've talked to the founder of Curiosity. So it's cure from curing and curiosity. And the startup founder, he, he said, it takes a lot of patience, years again. Yeah, it needs perseverance to show these examples. So it's all about using VR to use with stroke patients, with Alzheimer, with Parkinson, with MS, by actually showing them in a VR reality how the body parts could still be there and they start to use it again. And again, it's something that takes a lot of time you know, for the patients to practice, but our brain is super intelligent. There's so much things wired and something we can learn again. I think that's a beautiful example where this is one part, it's the user need, it's the patient that has a problem and then starts the hard work. You need to work with the reha kliniken, no? with the recovery centers, you have to work with the doctors, you have to work with the insurance companies, you have to work with the end users as well, you have to work with uh, the nurses. And he showed that, because you just mentioned it, it's a beautiful example. He said there was a, a nurse that was been working in one of the clinics and said, no, ah, <laughs> oh, yet another innovation. I mean, they, you know, they pass our place every other day. And, and she came back and said, after 30, 40 years, that's the first time that she saw a technology that really helps the patient. And that's the same, I would say, in, in, in water industries to find these people that believe in it and really find the real problems that there are. There are many things. And it's also about not coming and saying, oh, everything is wrong that you did. There is so much tradition that we can be really proud of. So start with that. See what other things worked and see how we can add to that. I think that resonates quite well with your concept of minimum lovable product and what you explained around how you need to have those first users that really love it. And again, that's a clear bridge with, with growth marketing, which is all about narrowing down and finding the user for which what you are developing is, is gold and then rebuilding from there and to, to reach mass market. Now there's 
one elephant in the room. We are both working for a 219 years old company. And uh, I've said the market in general, and I've been very generic to say that, yeah, you know, people can be reluctant. I mean, let's be now very concrete. In our company, GF Piping Systems, if you come and say, hey, we want to change the way that we approach innovation, we want to bring in this new methodology, what was the first reaction? Was it, oh, God, we were waiting for 200 years for that and we're glad it comes? Or was it like, hey, we've been working for 20 years, for 30 years, for 40 years, and we're very successful. Why shall we change something? I think naturally, if if there's new things, it's always like, okay, yeah, prove it first, right? <laughs> we see how it goes. What I like about the GF mentality is people generally open and we have been successful. So again, if I talk to our sales colleagues out in the market or our product managers here, we are successful and everybody is giving their 150% every day. And I think that's a great basis to start to work more and more on innovation. And that's also the approach that I as a person like to take is I'm not coming and saying, please, Antoine, stop what you do. It's it's more, how can I help you to make your work better? And again, with uh, growth marketing, um, I've never tried to bring everybody to the table and say, oh, you have to like it. It's more, again, where in the company are people that would like to work on things and they can have support? Where are the people that believe in a project, in a challenge that we have? And let's work together. Make it concrete. No, let's make a business case together. Let's work on an actual challenge that you have. And that's where I believe strongly that this, this change can happen. People talk about a lot about no um, U-boat <laughs> projects. So kind of the submarines that go through. Um, I'm not a big fan of trying to hide everything and come up in three years. It's more about finding the right people in the different departments and the different business units to say, okay, let's, let's do something together. And that's where kind of the whole thing comes, which, you know, you said failure and learning from failures. When I was working at corporate, we started a lot with awareness. The topic was mainly about creating awareness and we did a lot of one day trainings and people loved it. It's like, oh, beautiful post-its. But you couldn't be far, far away from the reality. Uh, innovation is nothing about the post-it itself. It's about being flexible with the ideas you have, being able to reconnect. And I think that's really what's more important um, than sending everybody in into kind of a session where you learn how to use a post-it. It's the mentality. It, yeah? It's good that you mentioned the post-it because I think that that's the other big image of design thinking, which I didn't uh, give so far, which is that, yeah, it's all about post-it on the wall. And that's a part of the methodology, but the methodology is not about selling or using post-its. So one element that, that you, you shortly explained before was the example of, of Yves Serra, so the former CEO of, of GF that brought in the, the methodology. And the thing which, which I don't get here is, I mean, you've seen that video probably 50, if not 500 times of uh, IDEO developing a new shopping cart. And uh, if there's someone listening to that that didn't see that video, I'm going to put the link in the, in the show notes. But I'm absolutely sure that you've all seen that at least three times. And to me, the outcome of that video is that it's a very flat hierarchy. There is no real boss and employees. Oh, you, you disagree. I like that. <laughs> so if you have now a methodology which is brought in by the very top of a company, like it was the case here with Ifsera, isn't it kind of the opposite to what you want to achieve on the long run? I think every change no now coming a bit more from from my sociology and also from from my um, management innovation background every change needs multiple layers and that's what i wrote my thesis about <laughs> funny enough it was about uh, legitimation of new organizational innovation on the topic of holacracy self-organization right it was like whoa <laughs> why would you do that and the beauty about this changes, it needs all the different layers. You do need to have a top-down support saying, 
yes, we are willing to give our teams more decision-making power. They come up with a proposal and yes, we are a company that's working you know, with hierarchical levels. You still have somebody that takes a decision, whether it's a business unit um, you know, head as, as Jens Friesenborg, for example. We do with that methodology give our teams more means to create a dialogue with the management to have a better decision. It's different if you come with a business case with very beautiful figures uh, out of an Excel, or you actually have information from the market underlying the business case you're doing. So I think that's why you need the top-down approach of people trusting into the project teams and also being able to cope with that uncertainty willing to take a risk as we did with Oxford Flow to say, okay, let's invest into a technology from a startup. And now we have to figure out all the pretty nitty details on how to integrate it. And it also needs the bottom up where people need to take more responsibility. And it's hard to hide <laughs> in a project team that really wants to push things. You need to have these discussions, the conversations, but not on your personal preferences, but really debating on what is the data telling you. So that was your very corporate answer. <laughs> yes. No, no, no. I, I, I'm being mean here. But uh, I'd like to, uh, because I, I saw your face when I was mentioning that idea was a flat hierarchy. So you disagree with that? It depends on the organizational design you have for your company. Here, compared to um, the Freitag bag as an example, where they put in a holacracy where you have different circles and within the circle you have experts that decide for themselves. They do consult the rest of the, the circle, but they do the decision versus at GF, we still have a structure where we still have for every project a steering committee. So as long as we have that structure, it's never a flat hierarchy. You maybe have a flatter hierarchy in the project team because you say every subject matter expert has a voice. And if I'm now an idea lead, so putting a project um, to the next level, it's not me deciding alone on what we do next, but I consult the team, I consult the data that we've gathered. And based on that, we put in a decision as a proposal. So it's the same with the, the shopping chart example. There is still the management of that uh, supermarket coming to decide if they do it or not. So I think that's something that's a very nuance that this video is actually not showing. You're still embedded into an organizational reality. Same here at GF. Uh, I shared the example with you last time, right? We are a company that has tradition. So also shareholders expect us to have a stable return on the invested capital. So we probably will never go and beyond craziness with all our ideas. At the same time, they also expect us to stay innovative, come up with new ideas, because that's what made us successful the last 200 years. So my corporate answer 2.0, <laughs> uh, we still have the structures. But again, it's a much lower hierarchy because I can ask and talk directly to a business unit head and an intern can be part of a project and has in his role as a subject matter expert, a pretty important voice also for the project. So yes, there are less hierarchies because yeah, the decisions are made differently, definitely. We scratched the topic of failure, and that is the last big stop I would see which would prevent people to go into design thinking. I mean, the old traditional way of doing innovation that you develop everything and you, after three years you put it out there in the market and then sometimes it's a big hit, sometimes it's okay-ish, but it's never like, or it's rarely a big, big, big failure. So it's, it's quite good for your ego. Probably not a good return on investment, but it's quite good for your ego. And now I'm going to make an exception and tell twice in the same podcast that I'm French. So to take an outsider view, we are working in, in a Swiss-German company with a lot of this German culture. And I would say, if you add that additional layer of Germanism on top of the, the traditional way that business don't want to fail, here, when you fail, you not only fail, you also lose your face. So how counterintuitive is it to now tell to those same people, you know what, you shall fail, you shall fail fast and iterate from your failures? 
I think, especially in the Swiss German culture as well, I mean, failure, Fehler machen, that's something you, like, you learn as a little kid, mach kein Fehler. So I think, uh, and I think even in Chinese, there's not a lot of words for that. So I think it's, it's not in the human nature. I think you're an interesting mix to that extent, because I would say, if you ask me to name two cultures which hate failure, I would say, German culture and Chinese culture. So you're a mix of those two failure-averse cultures and still you're working this and thinking you must be really crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so my non-corporate answer to that, <laughs> it is really about giving the people again means to learn and think. We had a huge discussion here in the company you now about different failure types. It's okay to, I don't know, uh, to, to create an experiment No, where we have in a hypothesis-driven environment, what design thing is all about, to make tests and fail. And then it's all of a sudden not a failure, but it's an experiment that proved A or B. Mm -hmm. And that's something I really love is actually reframing the word failure. Because there are some things, you no, know, when you have a machine, you have to ensure that the things are running if you work in a nuclear power station. There are some things you now where people need to learn with pressing the button. I love that example of somebody, I'm bad in quoting. <laughs> People had to learn to say, you rather press the red button once too often than not at all. And then you screw the things up. So that's a very different environment to take decisions, making failures versus in an innovation driven environment where you ideally actually have hypothesis that you want to test. And that's also what I would love to see in the conversations we have is being very honest about very tiny failures we have now and then. It was two weeks ago, it was a stupid example, but we were organizing interviews for our current project. I was trying to organize five, six different meetings internally and externally and everything was settled. And I was like, oh, good. And I got a call from one of our sales colleagues and it's like, where are we supposed to have a meeting now? So I forgot to invite the expert for the expert call, <laughs> which is something so small and so not, no, that's not a very important failure. It's at the same time so important to talk about all these human flaws that we have and showing that it's not bad in order to prevent bigger fails. And that's the same in projects. It's very hard to work on the sunk cost that you had because nobody wants to stop a project that everybody actually knows that will fail. And that goes back then to the trust in the company to say, are we data driven in the end? Like we have, no, we have the feedback from the market. Are we still willing to do that? Everybody says it's not what they want. Are we still pushing it forward? We have the, the tests back, you know, the, the technical components. Uh, it actually needs to prolong because, I don't know, the material is not ready. Are we still trying to push it forward? Or do we as a company take a bold decision and say, let's stop it? So, yeah, we could do another podcast <laughs> just on, on failure. You have to be aware of the environment, of the culture that we are in and making concrete examples that people can start working with that concept. I think you just pronounce the word, which is key here, which is culture. I think we, we both heard that sentence so many times that culture, it's strategy for breakfast, but that, that, that pertains very true. And if you have this culture, I, I just read an example. I think it was yesterday about cholera. In the beginning of the 20th century, cholera was believed to be a disease which was spread by air. And it was written by the law in, in France, in Germany, that it is spread by air. And there's, there, there was one guy in the UK that said, no, guys, you're wrong. It's spread by water. And that guy for a decade was considered as, as mad, as crazy. And he persisted. And he, he was able, at the end of the day, to prove he was right and everybody else was wrong. When you tell this kind of story, then it gives you this impression that you shall take all your projects and push them push them, whatever you hear from people, because go on, keep pushing, it's going to be right. Whereas what, what you said about early failure is exactly what you want to avoid. Not that you want the guy who is right to stop on the way, but you want him to make him so many small experiments that if he's right, he gets a proof every second week that he's on the right path. So that at least <laughs> he knows why it's, he keeps pursuing his project. And where I'm heading with this very long question is I read another book which is called Creative Confidence which is written by the brother Kelly one of them being the founder of IDEO 
And the point they have in the book, which is very valid, is that you need to be confident in your ability to be creative in order to be creative. It is a self-creating process to be creative. So now if you're failing every second day because you're following the process and you're doing you're doing it read the right way and you're trusting the process, don't you come at some point to a moment where you're thinking, well, all my ideas are crap. I better leave innovation to someone else. That's very, uh, very deep question with a lot of different aspects. <laughs> I'm trying to, to figure out which one to, to pick out of it. I think there's two extremes, as you just said before. I think what we want as a company is that our people do have an, like an entrepreneurial spirit. So they believe in the cause. They now take up the sword <laughs> and she's running into kind of the, the future. What as a company is important is also that we have a clear strategic direction where we go. So defining the, you no know, the play fields for our people to go crazy. If we decide we don't want to go into, uh, I don't know, water in, on, on the Mars. Okay. Well, then we know what's the play field, right? And that's before even starting, because we're in a company, we are not the guy <laughs> with cholera, uh, which is bad enough as an example. We have to define kind of more or less the boundaries. How willing are we to take risks? Um, do we have a, no, do we have a pot where we say, okay, we want to work on transformational stuff that's maybe only 10 years? Or do we say we want to work on uh, just sustaining the core? And that's a call to make. And out of that, you can then tell your people, no, Antoine, as a business developer, go ahead because water treatment is the next big thing. And this is kind of the playground you have. And within that, you need to have both aspects. You need to be the guy that believes in the thing. You ideally have a team around you that believes at least in the vision as well, that helps you to overcome all these uncertainties along the way. And again, it needs a lot of gut from an individual and as a company to say, we walked into a certain direction and we figured out that's a dead end. And that's something that's, that's hard again, right? As a Swiss company, uh, as a 200 plus uh, years old company, it doesn't feel nice to say, let's stop something we've been doing for many years. So that's really you know, where the strategic aspect comes into play again to say, okay, what's the direction we want to take anyway? And within that, you need to have that confidence as an individual, but also as a company. And then again, you need to have that, I don't know, you don't see the podcast, the thing, no, like the clause to stay on, on the thing and just say, okay, I, whatever I, I'll bite. And that also where, where the, the ego part comes in. No, don't put your ego in the center because then you keep on pushing things that actually everybody tells you, look, don't do it. But also have that net of decision makers, of project team members that would say, whoa, okay, <laughs> Antoine, please stop it. Seriously, that's stupid. <laughs> and yeah, last, last but not least, I think when we go into this way of working, it again depends on which stage you are. We talk about front-end innovation, early stage ideas. We also talk about execution and once you've decided on something, don't start to question everything from zero again, but really, you know, focus on the project plan, focus on the nitty gritty details. And that's also a mentality shift also, or sometimes other people. Not everybody is the best push things forward person. Um, not everybody loves to deal with Excel. So also come up with a team that knows at which stage you actually need to push the things forward. I'd like to close that deep dive with... Um some tips, if you have some tips to share, if people want to uh, not become an expert in design thinking like you are from day one, uh, because I guess that's there, there is a learning curve, but want to implement some elements of design thinking to improve their way of working gradually, what would be like your top three tips that they can start using just after listening to this? Let's summarize from the start. I think the one part we said is really the, this deep listening. Mm-hmm especially when you don't understand yet what the problem or the solution is, just kind of start with asking the questions also to the right people, <laughs> no? So do your stakeholder map, think about the potential customers, think about the customers of the customers and also the different partners you have. Again, we're still in a, in a human-centered world <laughs> yet. Let's see what the next 50 years will bring, no? If robots make the decision. But really think... 
and create that landscape for you who are the decision makers in the organization. Also the informal ones, no? uh, is it more the sales? Is it more marketing? Think about the external partners you have and also the ones that you don't have as a contact yet. It needs a lot of guts to call up cold, cold people and say, hey, <laughs> I think you're important to make my business happen. Can I talk to you? So listen, talk to your people, the, the known and the future partners to be successful. And the third one is trusting the gut feeling. Sounds very, you know, hugging trees and everything. <laughs> we humans are all based on our experiences and everybody brings that to the table. So scanning, understanding where the data is coming from and then asking oneself really honestly, is that something I believe in? Shall I continue? Is there somebody that is missing on the journey? Do I need to have another talk with that person? When to stop and when to continue to fight? I think we have a very you know, elaborated over millions of years <laughs> established system within self. So yeah, listen to that gut feeling. Leah, it was a pleasure to have this deep dive with you. I propose you to switch to uh, the rapid fire questions. Sure. I'm curious what comes now. <laughs> it's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that last section, I'll try to keep the questions short. So if you can keep the answers short as well, it's better. But you'll see that I'm always the one which makes it much longer than it should. So let's start with the very first question, which is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? I'd like to quote the current project we're working on together with uh, the sustainability teams, our sales colleagues are working on making sustainability a business for our company and why there's such a momentum currently. There's lots of talks about sustainability, like there was about innovation a few years ago and making that tangible, making that concrete really excites me, especially because we have a really cool team working on it. If you want to go a bit deeper into that topic, I can recommend you my discussion with uh, Alice Schmidt and Claudia Winkler on that, uh, that microphone. I think it was Claudia bringing up that sustainability is a 12 trillion per year business opportunity. So it's like you're doing good. And when you're doing good, you're creating 10% of the world's economy. Yeah. I'm glad that uh, you, you're working on that. <laughs> What's your favorite part of your current job? What I love best is also the biggest challenge. It's working per day on a lot of different levels. So working on the micro level of managing a project, getting sure that we get the interviews, that people know them, get their deliverables on time, which is just very rewarding because end of the day you see something out. At the same time, uh, working with uh, an amazing team and trying to further develop them as an individual, but also as, as a team or as a department. And also thinking on a third level, macro, where is innovation going? What is needed to make the company more successful, faster, and not drifting into uh, bureaucratism is really what I love, is switching kind of every hour of my day <laughs> into other meetings, other frames. And I think that's also the biggest challenge sometimes. Like it would be really nice just to be in a project. I think I wouldn't be happy if I wouldn't have these <laughs> mind fucks. <laughs> that's probably the, the right point in time for, for me to take my last question before I still in the fridge, which is what is your elevator pitch to uh, your role today at GF? Oh, shoot. <laughs> Didn't practice that one. I think the elevator pitch is as a head of global design thinking, I tried to make this company successful with early stage ideas to make them tangible, make them into business cases to create money. At the same time, really working with all our amazing colleagues around the globe to bring that culture transformation, that different way of working into becoming a more resilient company for the future. What is the trend to watch out in the water industry? I think we talked about sustainability, right? <laughs> Very briefly, I think putting on that planet-centric innovation approach will also help to solve a lot of problems we currently face. There is water scarcity, there is resource scarcity, there is pollution and I think that's one part to, to look into. After this example of curiosity, I'm also much more open to digital 
I'm really an analog person, so I love to have my phone offline and on flight mode for a few days. I think there's great potential to understand digital, not again as a tool or a solution to everything, but really thinking about opening up bigger fears, fears, but also again in small steps. So, yeah. <laughs> We could do another episode on that one. <laughs> What's the thing you care about the most when you're working on a new project and the one you care the least? Interesting. So going now on the personality uh, traits topic, for me, it's really about the trust of the people. So A, having the right people, expertise, but also mindset-wise, and then having the right people with the right working <laughs> ethics. <laughs> so do you believe in this thing and just give your 150% and also having discussions? Not just ja und amen <laughs> and everybody goes, but you really have, are we willing to, to also be vulnerable in the process? Because innovation goes pretty deep, actually, especially when you have um, fights over <laughs> where should we go next? And the thing I, I like least, I realized that I'm not so much, even if I came from, from, from a science background, I'm just not that much into Excel sheets. <laughs> <laughs> There's people that are just much more uh, like they're faster, they're more aware. So I, I do always look that there is somebody in the team that, that is really fast with all the shortcuts. And <laughs> Poor Excel, he comes like in every second answer to that question. <laughs> it, it's so good, but it's such an underused tool in the end, I would say. <laughs> do you have sources to recommend to keep up with the water and wastewater market trends? And for you, I can make the question a bit larger. What are your sources that you are following to keep up with the current trends or do you avoid trends? I think I must admit that my my LinkedIn stream does give me some good hints on where things are going. I mean, your podcast comes up every other week with some new topics. I'm like, oh, I should, uh, <laughs> I should keep on being out there. For me personally, I realized because I'm not that much a social media person, I really depend on my personal contact. So whether it's colleagues in the company, whether it's colleagues from other previous work um, stations, like the vice consul in Shanghai, I'll be meeting her next week just to keep up with people, especially in different disciplines as well. It helps me to create my own personal trend rather to understand where other industries are going, where um, academia is going and having a rather a handful of deep dive conversation per week instead of spending three hours uh, online. And, and I'm also not that good with listening to podcasts, to be honest. So talk to the people that you have around you. <laughs> I would say it's, uh, it's a pattern in everything you shared today. It's about people and uh, being people-centric. So it makes about sense that it's also your first sources to go to. If not, I would be a bit concerned, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. Would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely speak with on that same microphone? let's say a partner in crime on the planet-centric uh, innovation aspect is Samuel Huber from the Good Patch um, GmbH. It's it's really this food and thought-provoking thesis about the planet becomes really like a very important stakeholder in innovation. So that's really where my brain gets kind of picked and, and triggered. So very spontaneously, uh, it's, it's there. And... Yeah, I'll just stop with that, actually. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's a very good suggestion. Well, Leah, it's been a pleasure. I hope that at some points down the line, we can do that new deep dive on failure because that's going to be even more counterintuitive than today's episode. So thanks a lot and uh, talk to you soon. Merci. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.